We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Hack It Out Golf Podcast. Myself, Mark Crossfield, Lou Stagner, and we've still got Greg Chalmers with us, our guest presenter, that we're enjoying his knowledge and input. Uh, we've got a super special guest, Lou and Greg. Uh, Greg, he's a friend of yours, so you're not in all. I just want to put it out there before we bring our special guest in. This is one of my childhood heroes as a golfer. I wanted to be this person. Like I, I, I just, I, he was... It was, it was Faldo and Corey, and I actually preferred Corey's kind of grip, but we'll talk about that. So we got special guest Corey Paven, major winner, Ryder Cup player, Ryder Cup captain with us today. Can't wait for the Big Ten. Should be fun. Welcome to the Hack It Out Golf Podcast. Corey Paven, thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, and I hope you outgrew that phase of admiring me so much <laughs> <laughs> no i still do admire you and absolutely i grew up watching your game and I, I loved your style of play i was never particularly you know when it is the role models it's how you you kind of um you know you relate to them and obviously never meeting you but i loved your style of play i wasn't particularly the longest hitter when i played as a kid and i definitely competed in quite a ferocious way which is what we got come through from you when we would watch you on telly and i admired that and i think you were the same lou and you were a bit of a cory fan growing up and yeah, i was a huge huge cory paven fan cory and freddie couples those were my two players that i followed there you go so we are um yeah we're, we're gonna have fan questions today and greg obviously your friends with cory but i'm sure you're a fan as well so we're going to kick off with the big Absolutely. 10 10 questions for cory paven and i'm going to start with the first one cory going to throw you back i think to 1983-ish i want to know your favorite european tour memory did you you started on the european tour am i correct with my research there or not yes you've done your research well um yeah i started in 83 on the european tour actually i started in south africa uh, early in the year and then i i played well enough to uh, learn, or earn my playing rights in Europe. Uh, so I played from the end of June till middle of October over there. Uh, played some nice events. Uh, probably the favorite ones that I played in are the ones I did well in, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, won the, I won the German Open over there. Um, I don't know. I think probably uh, the tournament I liked the most was probably, uh, as a, I guess it was the uh, uh, Lancome Trophy, the Trophy Lancome in yeah. Paris. You know, I enjoyed being in Paris and uh, the golf course is pretty darn good there too. So uh, a lot of great memories over there. You know, it was my first year as a pro and I met a lot of, uh, a lot of Australian players, a lot of, uh, you know, all over Europe, you know, all the different countries over there. So the first pros that I really ever met, you know, were uh, foreign players, so to speak, for, for myself. So when I actually got back out on the regular tour the next year, uh, my friends were all you know, foreign players that played in Europe and all over the world. Yeah, because it's quite a different tour, isn't it? Because obviously it goes across borders. It's crossing so many countries where the PGA Tour obviously is much more focused in America. Obviously it crosses borders as well nowadays because we have co-sanctioned events and what have you. But that must have been quite unique for you seeing the different cultures, as unless you were a really well-traveled American before you turned pro. I, I often... You know, it's quite a culture shock maybe for lots of Americans, you know, going to Paris and Germany and other places you must have played. 
Yeah, I I enjoy traveling. I always have. Uh, I traveled yeah. a little bit before, you know, my professional career as a golfer. But uh, being able to travel, I was in Sweden. I was in Germany, France, a few places in France, all over England, uh, Ireland. Uh, so it was nice to get my feet wet in all these countries and and South yeah, Africa yeah. as well. I've always enjoyed traveling around the world. Uh, I've always enjoyed different cultures and see what it's like and. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of Americans that don't necessarily enjoy that, but uh, I love traveling around the world and, and seeing places and, and meeting different types of people and seeing different types of cultures. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a really interesting. So let's fast forward to your time on the PGA Tour. Uh, you still hold the record for the lowest nine-hole score on the PGA Tour. 2006 U.S. Bank Championship, you shot 26 on the front nine. 26. Wow. I, I don't even know what the question is to someone that shoots 26 <laughs> for nine holes. Did he actually play nine or did he He played. He like, finished what? the ninth hole. He didn't walk off after <laughs> eight. Um, so walk us through that nine holes and, and did, it, did it register right away what you had done or did it register after the round, I guess? Well, I actually did not realize I'd shot 26 as a total. I knew obviously I shot eight under on, on the front nine. I, I birdied one through six and I, I screwed up on seven and made a par and uh, birdied eight and nine. So uh, it was, I made two really long putts uh, on number one, number four, I made a couple like 40 foot putts uh, and the rest of them were, you know, they weren't tap-ins, but they were, you know, extremely makeable putts. Uh, I was more concerned about trying to break, um, you know, trying to break 60. Uh, I just didn't realize it was a 26 till after the round, uh, you know, being a part 34 on the front nine, I, I just didn't even think about what it totaled up to, but it's nice to have the standalone record. There's nobody else yeah. that's done it. Um, there's a lot of guys that have shot 27 that were mad at me for doing, for shooting 26. <laughs> uh, but I said, you know, you can still go out and shoot 26. You have the opportunity to do it, but, uh, it's a pretty cool thing to have um, in the record book. And uh, the best thing about that week is I ended up going on and winning the tournament and, and it had been 10 years since I've won a golf tournament. So that was the, the great accomplishment for the week. Uh, but the nine hole score is a very cool thing to, to have the, the lowest total. What was interesting was you, I think you only hit two fairways on the, on the front nine. And I think you only hit three right. fairways for the round. So Corey Pavin, maybe the original bomb and gouger. Um, yeah. There you go. That's, I've often been referred to as that. <laughs> yeah. Corey, oh, Corey, Corey, you won. Um, you wanted a pretty steady clip, pretty much out of the gate. You know, winning the German Open your rookie year over there in Europe, and then you you come over, you get your card in America, and you win in April after getting it late in the year the year before. So, and and pretty much at a steady clip throughout your career, all the way up until ascending to number two in the world. What did you know and what did you figure out that other people don't? You know, what, how did you get to a place where you were so comfortable in that environment and, and winning? After all these years, you're asking me this? You yes, should have asked me yes. a long time Corey, ago. I wrote down a list of questions. <laughs> like, Why haven't I asked him this before? <laughs> you know, I don't know, Greg. It's... it's um... I've always been super competitive. I, I, I don't like to finish second. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to finish second rather than third, but it, when I finish second, I want to win. So I just tried to figure out what it would take to win golf tournaments. You know, um, sometimes it's dealing with your nerves and, and overcoming that. Sometimes it's overcoming not really playing your best golf and trying to figure out how to get the ball in the hole. Uh, but I think the biggest thing for me is I'm just really competitive. Uh, I love to get out there and get in the mix. Uh, and I love it even more when I succeed and, and win a golf tournament. Um, you know, I had to go through growing pains just like everybody else. Uh, you know, I had my disappointments with not winning a tournament and, and either messing it up or somebody beat me or whatever it might be. Uh, but at some point you just have to figure out what do I need to do to win a golf tournament and how do I go about it? Uh, you know, I generally had a strategy of how I wanted to play uh, a golf course. Uh, sometimes you have to throw, it, throw that out the window a little bit, coming down the stretch and maybe take some chances. Uh, sometimes if you're ahead enough, you can be real conservative. And, um, you know, it's just a lot of different ways to win. 
And uh, probably the biggest thing, I think probably when I was younger was controlling my emotions, uh, especially my anger, because I, I was a, an angry child yeah, uh, yeah. Play, really? playing golf. You know, I, I was just so competitive that I wanted to do well so badly that I'd get so mad at myself and I'd end up, you know, having a bad stretch, you know, because I was so angry. So I had to control my, my emotions and, and use them in a positive way as opposed to having it affect me negatively. So, you know, there's a lot of facets that go into it. Uh, and, you know, just learning to control my nerves, you know, accept, accept that I'm nervous, uh, pay attention to it and deal with it as opposed to trying to ignore something like that. So there's a lot of factors on that, Corey. Was that with something you did with Dr. Coop? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, Dr. Coop. I started working with Dr. Coop in 1990. Um, I had gone through a few years of not playing my best golf. And I felt like I was playing well, but I wasn't scoring well. And, and, and he really helped me understand, you know, how to go about it and uh, focus on some different things, kind of focus on, on the process as opposed to focusing on the result. Uh, as long as I executed and did things well, eventually things would go, you know, nicely. You know, the result would be there. Uh, and it's kind of fun, you know, when you're just focused on one shot at a time, you know, the old, you know, adage, uh, but it's really true. Uh, you know, just let things take care of itself, uh, play your best golf, do your best, hit your best shot, hit your best chip, hit your best putt. And that's all you can do. And as long as you focus on that, you know, the results are going to be what they are, but if you do the best you can do as an individual, uh, that, that's all you can do. You can't, you, you can't make results happen, uh, but you can make yourself do the best you can. Yeah. Did you have an age where you felt like you got a gr- like you got grip of your temper? So was there like, can you remember an actual time? I remember being, I, I mean, I remember being a very angry junior golfer wanting to compete. And if it wasn't going your way, golf's an amazing game where you just can't control it some days, no matter how hard you work. But I distinctly remember a time when I was, I think I was 15, where I just literally switched those emotions off. I was able to let them go. Was there a distinct time where you found like you found control of those emotions as a young person or was it more just a gradual process? Well, let's do uh, another interview in about 10 years. I'll let you know if I figured it out yet. <laughs> You know, I, I think, you know, to answer your question, I think there was probably a time I would guess it was uh, probably sometime early in college yeah. that I realized I was doing a lot of damage to my my scoring by getting so angry and, and letting it take control of me as opposed to me taking control of my anger or emotions. You know, it works both ways, too. It's not just anger. It's excitement, too, that you have to control. Yeah. So, um it was probably around there, you know, after making, you know, getting mad and making, you know, a couple doubles in a row and doing that for about a year and saying, wait, there's a pattern here, you know, let's try to work yeah. on this. And uh, it's hard work. It's very hard to do. Um, uh, I found it difficult, but once I did that and used the emotions in a positive way, uh, I started playing some really good golf. Yeah, it's good. I mean, because it is interesting as I always think of like the John McEnroe analogy, you could argue that someone like John McEnroe, if you follow tennis, his emotions in lots of ways where they might have cost him, you would see him helping him, like moving him forward exactly. possibly. And it, like, yeah. even though it's a negative in a book commas emotion, you know, to be angry, it's actually really positive. Like you say, that it, it's the fact that you care so much that it means so much. If you turn that to positive, I think a lot of people can really learn from that because we know the yeah, average, I, average cav- casual golfers getting pretty angry at the weekends, aren't they? They could. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I'm not sure if they have the right to get angry if they just play once in a while, but yeah. You know, I, I've, I've, you know, going back to what Greg was talking about with Dr. Coop, uh, we worked on that a bit and talked about getting angry on the course. And he said, you know, sometimes it's good to get angry. It's good to yeah. get mad. It kind of pushes yeah. me to do better. 
but you still have to have some sort of control over it, you know, and uh, he'd tell me once in a while, it's, it's okay to get mad, you know, and, and use it. And sometimes it got me going, it got me fired up, you know, just like a guy like John McEnroe, it probably got him going and, and he yeah. may have played his best tennis when he was kind of, you know, angry John, you know, yeah. in that regard. So yeah, you mentioned absolutely. you went to first see Dr. Coop in 1990. How common was it back in 1990 for players to be working with someone like Dr. Coop? Yeah, sports psychology was, it, it was, I'm not sure if it was in infancy stage, but it was young. Uh, the reason I started working with Dr. Coop is that Payne Stewart was working with Dr. Coop. And I saw a big change in Payne's game in, in a really positive way. And it was just good timing for me to work with him. Uh, the first day I saw him, uh, it was in Dallas uh, at the Byron Nelson and Payne had just won the Byron Nelson. And I just missed a cut and was, you know, down in the dumps and hitting a low, you know, big valley. And I was very upset. And, and so Dr. Coop went from Payne's victory party into my hotel room that had all the, the drapes drawn and it was dark and, and dim. And it was kind of my mood, you know, I was just kind of, you know, in essence depressed, I guess, or, uh, so it was kind of funny for doc, you know, we've talked about it over the years, how he went from, from Payne's victory party to my, my big defeat party. Uh, <laughs> but it, it didn't take, it didn't take long for his stamp to, to get on me. I think two weeks after I saw him, I finished second at Colonial uh, after going through a pretty hard time. And by the end of the year, I felt fantastic about my golf game, you know, five months later. And I remember getting on the phone with him and I guess it would have been October. I called Dr. Coop and I said, I've got it. I'm, I'm back. I'm going to have a great year next year, which was 1991. And I ended up winning the money title that year. I mean, I just felt that good about the work that we had done. Excellent. Yeah, good stuff. Corey, so I just go on, Greg. No, I was gonna. I was just gonna follow up on that. Like, Corey, yeah. you played like nine hundred tournaments um, at my <laughs> count, and I lost count, uh, which is you know nine hundred really. Pretty much eighteen years straight, buddy. Um, it's uh, it's a lot of golf. I was, you know, everyone always talks and knows about the highs. I was wondering how you dealt with adversity because I think tenacity and you know, your tough competitiveness is, is such a fantastic asset that people could draw from. But how did you, how did you cope other than drawing the hotel curtain room, you know, drawing the curtains across? <laughs> how did you cope with, with adversity throughout your career? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I think that's a way to tell what someone's like, I guess, is, is when they go through tough times. And I've had a couple of really bad slumps in my career. And, you know, I think, Greg, I think the, the bottom line for me is that I always believed in myself. I always believed that I could play well, no matter how badly I was playing at the time, uh, you know, else I would have just quit. And, you know, there, it crossed my mind a few times to quit, you know, certainly. And, you know, when you're playing poorly for years on end, it seems like uh, it doesn't seem like a bad option is to get out of that, um, that hole that, that I've dug for myself. Uh, but I think bottom line is I always felt like I could get my game back. I, I felt like I wasn't washed up. I wasn't done that. I had something not only to, you know, I had something to prove to myself that I could come back and, and conquer this slump or this bad period of time. And, you know, for me, that's, that's what made Milwaukee, you know, one of my most special wins because it was 10 years since I'd won the last tournament. And that meant so much to me. Uh, in many ways, it meant more than winning the U.S. Open uh, because of the the path I took to get to Milwaukee, you know, 10 years of kind of, you know, cruddy play. Uh, but it's it's hard. It is. It's a the biggest thing I think for me was believing in myself, uh, working my butt off and and working with the right people to try to get out of it. You know, it's not just a physical thing. It becomes a, a gigantic mental thing is to get out of a slump as well. And, you know, am I going to ever do this? You know, you have such poor belief in yourself in some ways uh, after that period of time that you have to build your confidence back up. And it takes time to do that. Right. I'm sure you've had periods in your life too, mate, where you've, um, where you've thought you'd never play bad again. 
You know, you get oh, to yeah. number you get to number two in the world. I'm sure your parents like, I got this. I'm never going to play back. Have you ever had that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I think you know, I've had two really nice stretches in my career. Um, the second one was was basically from the middle of '90 when I started working with Dr. Coop uh, till you know, kind of the end of '96, where I just I just played well. It seemed like every week or you know, top 10 every other week or every three weeks at least. Uh, I mean, that, that's what makes those slumps easier to deal with because you figure maybe I can get back to that type of golf because I know I've done it before. Uh, but that's fun. It's fun when it goes great. I mean, you know that, you know, when you go out there and you just, you go out and play and you shoot 65, 64, and you feel like you left some out there. Uh, and that's, that's one of the greatest feelings there is, uh, yeah, yeah. is when, when things are easy you know, and, and you just think it's never going to be not easy. And then when it's bad, you think, how can it ever get good again? I mean, that's the (laughs) crazy thing about, about sport in general, life's that way too. But, you know, golf is, is probably like that more than any other sport. That's the world that I live in all the time, Corey. Yeah, I'm in that world forever. (laughs) Lose the weight. Just believe in yourself. But it's coming. (laughs) It's coming. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's move you then to um, 1995 U.S. Open win. I've got a question about your U.S. Open win. You, we can't talk to Corey Pavin and not talk about the U.S. Open win, which lots of us know you most for, to be fair. Um, I want to know where that forward is now. Where, where Right now, where is that forward? It's in a box or you don't even know where it is? Where is that trusty forward? It was a forward, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a forward. Well, if I tell you, I'm going to have to kill you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, right right now, it's actually in storage, but because um, we, we moved a little while ago, but we have stuff in storage. So, but it, it was uh, when I lived in LA, it was in a shadow box uh, in yeah. my house on display. So it's still in the oh. shadow box. Uh, I actually use, I used that forward for quite a few years after that. And uh, I put it to rest uh, probably. I guess it was probably late nineties or around 2000. Um, and then I, uh, actually Lisa, my wife put it up into a shadow box and had it framed up and, uh, I've had it there ever since. And probably the, the putter is going to join it that I used in the U S open eventually, but I'm still, it's still yeah. in the rotation. What, what was the putter? It wasn't one of those bullseyes, was it? Cause you did use a bullseye. It was not. It was a blade. Yeah. What was, it was a blade. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. It was a, uh, a Cleveland design by, yeah, lovely. It looks like the you know the Arnold Palmer putter or eighty eight yeah, yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a copy of that. So every actually every club in my bag that week was a Cleveland golf club. I was gonna all, ask all what 14. was the forward? The forward was a Cleveland. It was what a, was the loft yeah. of it? Was it like nineteen? Well, now you're you know? getting technical. You know, yeah, you're asking yeah. technical <laughs> questions. It, did um, it have a ring on the bottom or not? <laughs> yeah, I'd have to look. I actually don't know. it's gotta no. be somewhere around there. I'd imagine, yeah, yeah. but it was a VAS uh, forward. Yeah. I used almost all my clubs were VAS, except yeah. for the two sandwiches and my putter. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I'll never forget that shot. It was an amazing shot. And it's not very often you see a second shot into an 18th of a US Open in a finale that bounces short and bounces up. Like it bounces in the fringe. Like if you think of modern day golf, Lou, like you're not seeing many second shots because it was a par four, wasn't it? Yes. Par four. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but you know, short you, gotta, up. you gotta do what you gotta do, you know, that's you get the job done. What, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what Greg was saying, you'll find a way to, to get the ball in the hole. And 100%. You know, I hit a shot very similar to that on uh, the 36th hole of that tournament. Uh, same, same club, same shot. So, and I hit a really good shot. So I had a good picture in my mind uh, for the 72nd hole as well. So it was nice to have hit a good shot in that on the exact same hole pretty much the same position earlier in the week. 
I was going to ask, and I don't, I don't mean this in a funny way, but it, was it a pull or was it literally hitting the spot you want it? Because it's very close to that left-hand trap, which was short of the green. Was it like on the money of how you saw it or did you just pull it a bit? And obviously, like I, I don't want to play down one of the best shots I've seen in a major. But <laughs> does, was, does that make I sense? Was, it wasn't Tell me it was a great shot. Tell me it was a great shot. He's going to say, I pulled it 20 yards. exactly what I wanted to do and I hit it right yeah. there. The, you know, the, the whole thing on that shot you know i won't say that i pulled it but you know there was a, a lot of wind blowing right to left and it was yeah. blowing almost 20 miles an hour and what i was just trying to do was aim at the right edge of the green and hit a little bit of a draw and let the wind bring it to the hole so in essence i did hit the shot the way i wanted to and uh you know it, it couldn't have come off any better you know if i'd sat there and hit a thousand balls yeah uh, yeah 100%. so I, I knew the second i hit it it was it was good you can tell by your, you can tell. Yeah, my, my reaction. Yeah, I knew it was pretty good the second I made contact with it. Excellent. Yep. Let's uh, let's stick with the majors. That that was, uh, I remember that shot vividly, and it was an amazing yeah. shot. One of my favorites in golf. So I want to stick with this one, which may be less of a favorite memory for you. Uh, the 92 <laughs> Masters. The 92 Masters. So me, as a fan, I mentioned at the beginning, I was a huge fan of you and Freddie Couples. So 92 coming down the stretch in the final round, you're charging on the back nine and Freddie puts it on the bank on 12. And as a fan, I did not know. We didn't know at first. We, we all assumed it was in the water. You had just stuffed it on 16. You hit it tight on 16. You ended up making the putt. You got to 10 under Freddie. If that ball doesn't magically hang up on the bank. Uh, still have no idea how it did. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. Me too. Yeah, yeah I'm, he, I'm with you on that one as well. I, yeah, he's probably <laughs> falling back to 10 under. And you're going to be tied. You're walking off 16 tied for the lead if it doesn't magically stay on the bank. So you yeah. did. You were playing at the time. You didn't see what we saw watching on TV. When you saw that after the round, I, I didn't. did Floyd finish ahead of you? Um, you were third, did, right? By, yeah. by one shot. By ahead. one shot. Yeah. But after the round, when you saw that, that could have changed the dynamics so much. Did you, what was your reaction when you saw what happened to Freddie? Well, if I told you I was still bitter about it, would that tell you? <laughs> 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 well, it's, you know, it's amazing of, of all the years and of that I watched it on TV. I, I cannot remember another ball not going into the water Never. that hit there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously it was a great break for Freddie and, and, you know, who knows what would have happened. Uh, it's hard to tell, but you know, it, that's, those are the things that happen sometimes when you win golf tournaments and uh, you know, it had rained a lot. And I think that area was, you know, pretty, pretty waterlogged. You know, I think his ball actually ended up resting against his pitch mark and that kept it yeah. from going into the water. And he hit a great pitch to get that close from there. It's not an easy shot uh, under those conditions. But, you know, that stuff happens. You know, I'm, I'm not upset or, or bitter or anything, really. I was just joking. But um, it would have been a different tournament if that yeah. ball had rolled into the water. It would have been a, a whole different deal going on. Um, but, yeah, I didn't see it. I didn't know about it till later. Um, but, you know. That's that's golf. That's the way things happen. Sometimes I've had good things happen to me, and I've I've won tournaments because because of it too. But it wasn't the Masters, right, right. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> do you do you still needle Freddie over that one, or have you ever needled him about that? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's 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 probably too long ago now to keep doing it, but uh, I'm sure there was a few years after that that you know. I, I just walk up to him, tell him, you know, you are so lucky. I can't believe that ball stayed up, you know? And, and he's like, Oh, whatever. You know, I, I tried to make it stay up, you know, who knows what Freddie's going to say, but um, you know, we have fun with it. It's, it's golf. And that, that's the nice thing. You know, the camaraderie that you have out there with their fellow pros and you can say stuff, you know, especially guys, you know, really well, I've, yeah. I've known Freddie since, gosh, I don't know. I was probably 15 or 16 when we met. So we, we go back a long ways. After you, after you win that U.S. Open, I had two-part kind of question. Leading up, you actually missed like three cuts out of four. Then you finished second in the Kemper Open the week before in the 95, uh, week before you win. And then afterwards, I wanted to, I wanted to know, did you find something and what did you find out at Kemper? And then 
after the win, what's life like? You know, is it chaotic? Because you actually played the next week and finished eighth. Like you must have played really nicely that week too. Did you were you already good at managing time? Like how chaotic is life afterwards? And did you find something leading into it? Well, um, at the time I lived in Orlando and um, I switched putters from my bullseye to the to the uh, Cleveland design by going into Kemper. And I'd worked with a gentleman there by the name of Jim Deaton, uh, who was the head pro- professional at, at Bay Hill at the time. And we worked really hard on my putting and, and you know, we kind of decided that we should switch to that putter. And I putted great at Kemper and lost a playoff there to Lee Jansen. And that was probably the biggest thing that I found was just my putting. And I went into the U S open feeling pretty good about the way I was playing, obviously. And, uh, I probably had one of the best putting weeks I've ever had in my life. Uh, with the exception of missing that putt on 18, uh, I made every putt inside of 10 feet. I believe, uh, it just had a phenomenal putting week. Um, so that was, that was probably the biggest change, at least at that, at that moment, I had been playing well that year anyway. Uh, but the putting obviously wasn't where I wanted it. And that's why I made a change. Um, and after that, it was kind of interesting because I committed to the PGA Tour uh, to go down and do, I think they call it a congressional golf outing uh, on Monday in DC, which was the day after I won the US Open. And I went down and, and you know, they flew me down in the, you know, the, the tour jet. And I went down and did did the day there, you know, all day out there on a part three, talking to senators and congressmen. And, and the day after that, uh, I committed to Tom Watson to do his charity day in Kansas city. So I flew to Kansas city no uh, way. And, and did that. <laughs> and that ended up back in Hartford Tuesday night late, uh, you know, to play in the pro-am and, uh, the next day. So it was a pretty crazy few days, but I committed to do those things. And, and it's funny because I, I actually had somebody come up to me the other day and say, uh, I can't believe you went and did that congressional golf outing the day after, you know, nobody would have done that. I can't believe you did that. And it was a very simple, it was a very simple answer for me was I said I was going to do it and I'm mad at my word and I went and did it, you know, and, uh, and it was fun. It was fine. Um, so what happened after all that, uh, those few weeks, um, is I wanted to make sure that things did not change that much in my life. I didn't want to go chase the dollars per se all over the world and, you know, appearance fees. I did, I played some tournaments, but I was very careful that I didn't overextend myself. Um, So I don't think things changed too much. You know, everybody thought I was a lot smarter after I won the U S open, you know? (laughs) And uh, you know, I was like, look, just because I won a tournament doesn't mean I know more than I did, you know, the week before. So uh, I tried to stay as grounded as I could, you know, hang out with people like you to keep me grounded. You know, you're pretty good at that. Uh, you know, if there's anybody going to put me in my place, it'd be someone like you. So, you know, I appreciate our friendship because, you know, the friendships are really important and they keep you, you know, humble. And, you know, I, I never want to get too big for my britches. You know, I, I don't, that's not a characteristic I admire in people. So I tried to really focus on that and focus on the fact that just because I won a tournament doesn't make me, you know, a better golfer per se than I was the week before. I'm still the same guy. I just happened to have won a tournament and, and not to think that I could do things that were outside my abilities. So I wanted to stay focused on playing within my own abilities as well. Right. Did you have to say no to a lot of stuff though? Like, cause you know, you see these days guys are doing, you know, talk shows and things like that. Was that an area you're like, I'm just not interested. Thanks. Or did you do it? I I actually went on uh, Letterman. Uh, That was actually the next week. I actually did that. uh, Cool. I think I I might've done that after it was either after Friday's round or after Thursday's round. Uh, It flew me up to New York, you know, in a helicopter and did that. And um, it was fun to do, you know, I mean, that's just cool stuff. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, You know, I enjoyed doing that. Um, but, you know, I, I did say no to a lot of things. Uh, I said yes to a few things. Uh, you know, there, there's advantages to winning a U.S. Open, and some of it is making your bank account a little bit better. There's no doubt about <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> but I don't want to say yes to so much that it hurt my golf game and, and that I played poor golf. So that, that was a, my biggest concern was to make sure I stayed focused on playing golf and, 
being ready to play golf tournaments. Yeah, keeping that balance, definitely. Um, yeah, next question. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, if you go and win a you know a major, that must be it's a skill. It must be a skill that you have to work on. Um, next question. I'm just going to move it away from golf for a fun little question. Favorite movie of all time? What movies is Corey Payton mm. watching? What would be a favorite movie? Well, do you not really watch movies? Have you got one? Yeah, I, I have one, but I'm not going to tell you that one. But um, and then you can just imagine what it is. But. Um, <laughs> My, I think, you know, one of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, uh, I just everyone's love that picking movie. that. Yeah, it's like golf pros get it given out when they join the PGA Tour. <laughs> That's all they give us. I love that movie. You're I love the second that movie. one to say that. Yeah. The, you know, the Sting, the Sting has always been one of my favorite movies. Um, you know, I love the, yeah. you know, the, the plotting and thinking and the way they go about things like that. That was a really fun movie to watch as well. And I, I'm going to say one, but you can't, you can't tell anybody. Greg, Greg knows this movie. I think that Princess Bride. I really enjoy that movie. You know, I know it, it's just hilarious to me. I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Mel Brooks and, uh, you know, obviously uh, Rob Reiner uh, produced that movie and they all have that kind of humor, that kind of funny uh, it's not quite slapstick, but it's uh, it's got a bit of wit to it, and and so that's yeah, yeah. one reason I like that movie a lot. We'll keep that Excellent. to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I had that in my notes. I had I I reckon Corey loves the Princess Bride bride movie. I had that in my notes. You didn't believe me that. Um, and you were in Tin Cup just quickly, wouldn't you? You had a little cameo yes. in Tin Cup, I think, didn't you? What was I did. That like? Freddie was that and fun? I. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was fun. Freddy, you know, you? I um, think you had a line. You did you both have lines? You definitely had a line. I think. I yeah, we know. both we we had a conversation. Um, yeah, and actually, the we did a I did a couple things, other things that didn't make the make it into the movie, but um, yeah. that was at the very end of the day, and the director just said, "Look, this is a situation in the tournament. It's the last day. Blah blah blah." Um, it was almost dark, and he goes, "You and Freddie go over there. You're going to walk this way, and you're going to walk through." you know, uh, what do they call it? Walk through frame and yeah. just make up dialogue of what you would talk about if you were playing oh, in the tournament, good. right? Yeah, yeah. So we just, we made up these lines and we did it and they shot it a couple of times and it ended up in the movie. So it was kind of fun. Uh, it was fun to do and it was, you know, fun to hang around those guys. Uh, you know, Kevin Costner, obviously, and Don Johnson, mm -hmm. I, I knew before and Cheech Moran was a, a great guy. You know, Cheech is fantastic. Um, yeah. So it was fun. It was fun to do. Yeah, absolutely. like that one. Uh, Lou, you're yeah. next up. What have we got for us? My favorite golf movie, by the way. Um, so yeah. when people think Corey Payton. Because you, I was in it? Is that why? You know, your, your, line, <laughs> your line lived on at the, the club that I played at. There was a trophy for this big event every year. And every year the line was, you know, I can't believe Greg Chalmers' name is going to be on the trophy below my name. <laughs> so that, they probably still say that to this day. So thank you very much for that line. It's good. Good stuff. My pleasure. <laughs> so when people think of Corey Pavin, uh, I think a lot of people, this would come to mind, can shape the ball whatever way he wants, hits whatever trajectory he wants. Phenomenal short game, incredible putter, not very long off the tee. When you look back at your first two years on the PGA Tour, your distance rank was 95 and then 66. Um, and your total driving rank was 27 and 17. Now, total driving rank isn't as good as strokes gained off the tee, but it's got a very strong correlation to strokes gained off the tee. So you were one of the best drivers of the golf ball your first couple of years. And then there was a cover story in 1987, I think it was Golf Digest, about how you shortened your swing. So like, did you, what was your what was the, the process back then? Like, were you intentionally trying to get straighter, more accurate? Did you not care that you were going to lose a little distance? I just, I'm really curious about that because it kind of floored me as someone who looks at a lot of stats when I looked and I saw how long you were off the tee in your first couple of years. Hmm. You know, I actually don't remember um, doing that so much. I, I remember a little bit about trying to, to hold my swing at the top and not be so loose. Uh, I thought, I thought that would create a lot better iron shots, iron play. 
Uh, and I probably hit it straighter after that as well, I'd imagine. Uh, but I, I never really thought about it as giving up distance. And, you know, I, I know back when I started, I hit further relative to everybody else, you know, than I, I did, you know, later in my career. Um, but I, I, I think, um, the distance thing for me, I, I never really thought about distance that much because I, I never was a long hitter. I, I never actually knew that stat that I was like, what'd you say? 60 something in driving distance. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is by far my best. I'm sure it is. Um, yeah. cause usually I'm in the 120s or something like that. Uh, I was, definitely more I thought it was way more important for me to hit in the fairways um and and maybe that was part of the reason why I shortened my swing I I actually don't recall thinking I need to shorten my swing but I think I probably just got it to parallel as opposed to past parallel um but I'm sure it was just for more control uh and I seem to think that my iron play was pretty darn good uh after that I mean, it was all right before that, but I think it got better and better. Uh, I, I feel like that's one thing about my game that people don't talk about that much is my iron play. Uh, I'm very, it's very important for me to know, you know, my distance control is there with my irons. And I, I would venture to guess after that period, my, my distance control with my iron play was much better. Uh, and that was probably the impetus to do that. Um, would I like to hit it longer? Always, you know, the <laughs> longest hitters in the world want to hit it further. So, you know, why wouldn't short hitters want to hit it further? But, you know, for me, it was really important to be in the fairways. You know, that was, that was critical to my consistent consistency. So when you, oh, were, that's a good question. I hadn't heard that question. Yeah, actually. So, uh, I didn't just, even remember uh, hearing uh, that. Just uh, Lou reads a lot. Yeah. Just to give context. <laughs> so your second year, you were 66 in distance. After that, your best year in distance was 153rd. Um, so it best was, year. yeah, your best, yeah, your best year was yeah. 153rd. So uh, around shot shaping, were you always trying to shape the shot, no matter the situation, no matter the club, or did you have sort of a go-to stock shape that you were using? Because I always thought of Corey Pavin as whatever he needed to hit. Um, if the hole was on the right, he was going to cut it in there. If the hole was on the left, he was going to draw it in there. Did, did you really do that all the time or did you have a stock shape? That, that's the concept. That's the ideal yeah. thing for me. Uh, being able to do that all the time is very difficult, uh, especially for me with the less lofted clubs. Uh, it was always was and still is the hardest thing for me to draw the ball with those clubs. Um, so I was more of a, you know, fade the longer irons and fade the driver and the more lofted club I got, the easier it was for me to draw it. Um, and vice versa, it was harder to, to fade short irons. Uh, it's, I think most people have that issue, uh, but to hit a high draw with the three iron, it was always a difficult shot. So unless I needed to take a risk or do something special, um, I would still, even to a left pin, I would take a three iron or something and, and hit a fade and play it to the right of the hole somewhere a little bit. Unless I was really on my game and I really felt great about my swing, I, I would try to draw that shot. Uh, but I'd have to be pretty on. Uh, and kind of the same thing with my, my driver. You know, if I needed a little extra distance and I felt pretty good about my swing, I, I'd turn it over and, and do that. Uh, trajectory has always been easy for me to control, you know, no matter which shape I'm hitting. Uh, but you know, ideally I'd love to draw it to a left pin, fade it to a right pin. Uh, I rarely try to hit a straight shot. Uh, it's just, I just don't see it in my mind very well. Uh, mm-hmm. I know like a guy like Byron Nelson, that's all he did was hit straight shots. But, you know, I grew up on a golf course that was short, had a lot of dog legs, you know, kind of where my driver would end up. So I would try to shape it around the corners. And I think that's where I learned to shape shots. Yeah, because you had that quite distinct practice swing as well for a period, didn't you? You had that big change of direction practice swing. Was that anything in particular that you, that was a feeling you were working on for a time? I mean, how long in your career did you use that kind of 
exaggerated practice swing. I can't remember what I remember just watching it on telly. It was it was a standout. A bit. Uh, have any of you seen Alex Noren? Alex yes, Noren, great European. He's got the same move. Does this like amazing change of direction, exit left, follow through position because he likes to see a little cut. Basically, he's just working that feeling. For you, Corey, that you remember that period where you had that that distinct practice swing? Yeah, sure. It was it was it was probably I, I believe that was more. Uh, from about 1990 to, you know, the mid nineties or, or maybe a little yeah. later than that. Um, you know, the whole reason for that was that I would tend to take the club outside on my backswing, a little outside and up and drop it under, uh, okay. you know, the ideal swing plane. So that was just to kind of compensate for that. So it was, I exaggerated it the other way, taking it inside on my backswing and feeling like I was coming over the top. So I would stop yeah. kind of getting stuck behind the ball a little bit. Um, so that was just a way to get me in the in-between, you know, my bad habit of, of dropping it under. Uh, so I would just exaggerate it the other way to try to find the middle ground. So my swing plane would be, uh, you know, a little more straight back and straight through, so to speak. So that that's why I did that. Um, you know, the, the reason to follow through more of a left feeling with a release is to keep the ball from going left. Yeah. So yeah. I could hit a hard fade with a big release. Uh, and I'd never felt like I was going to hit a shot left when I did that properly. Yeah, yeah. I, I always remember that follow through and I really liked it. So I'm a golf coach myself and it just showed as well because it, it was such a visual I'm working on a feeling and trying to get the amateurs to exaggerate a feeling like that was always really quite tough, but you show them people like you do it. And I would in modern era, I would show Alex Noren doing it and students are then a little bit more willing to maybe make practice swings that are a little bit more Frankenstein-y as in, you know, yeah. sometimes you've got to, you've got to like, I always call it like shock the system, you know, a couple of paddles on the system for amateurs. They're just too kind of, uh, trying to get it yeah, right I, all the time rather than I think that's a good that's a good philosophy it, it's it's easy to if somebody's doing something wrong with their swing or it's just a bad habit is to exaggerate it the other way and usually you'll find the the middle ground there somewhere where it's right yeah yeah uh, but yeah. you have to overdo some things to to get it to be correct in the long run totally. and that's kind of that's all that yeah. was yeah i like it i like it so we got we're on to our last question gentlemen i think this is number 10 and I, I, I'm going to hit, it's a, it's a challenging question. I've saved the most challenging one to last for you, Corey, because I want to talk about 2010 because we had a bit of a, like, we don't, we don't talk about the last Ryder Cup on this pod anymore. Like we almost like, it's almost like it didn't happen. Isn't it, Lou? <laughs> like we just like Ryder Cup, was there one? I, I can't remember if there was one, but 2010. So Man is just up the road for me. You're an, you're a non-playing captain, 2010. Is that correct? That's correct. And I want to know the waterproof story because <laughs> there was, so I'm sat here now in Devon. So Carrick Man is an hour and a half up the road, 2010 course. I played it many times. Um, and if I look out of my window now, it's not only dark because it's the evening, but it's howling down with rain. Um, the UK is known obviously for being a little bit on the damp side. Greg earlier talk, called it mud Island, but I'll let him <laughs> off for that. <laughs> um, tell us about a, the experience of the Ryder cup as a captain, but all more importantly, I want to understand what happened with the, with the, with the waterproofs. Did, did the team honestly come with no waterproofs? What, what was the story there? No, no, we, we came with waterproofs. Uh, okay. The, the, the president's cup the year before, uh, the guys loved the waterproofs they had. And, hey. and, and to be honest with you, I don't wear waterproofs when I play. I hate them. Yeah. So I just yeah. get soaking wet. I don't really care. Um, so they loved them. Uh, and I said, all right, we'll just use these. And, and we used them. And, and the problem that we had with them was that when it rained hard, <laughs> uh, they would, they would kind of, the outer layer, it was kind of a two-layer rain suit. And the outer layer actually would eventually, it held a little bit of water and they got a little heavy. Uh, yeah. They st everybody stayed pretty dry, but they were just heavy. And, and after that okay. morning on Friday, guys were like, you know, we don't like these, you know. Yeah. It's fine <laughs> if it's misty or if it's a little cold. It was fantastic stuff. Um, so 
I just made a decision, like, let's go down and buy new rain gear, you know, and yeah. let's, get some, <laughs> let's get some Gore-Tex stuff or whatever. And who cares? You know, let's just change it. Let's make it work. You know, it was a simple solution to a problem. And yeah. And of course, you know, we never needed rain gear again the rest of the week. Actually, we never played in the rain again. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't uh, like any defects in it. It was just that that rain gear did not uh, perform well in torrential rain. Yeah. Uh, and most <laughs> rain gear, you're going to get wet when it's raining. Welsh rain anyway, is tough. So, so it wasn't a hard decision to change it out. I, I felt bad for the company because you know, it was a big deal. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. you know, it just, it just didn't perform the way I expected it to perform. And, um, so we just changed it out. It, it was made a much bigger deal of than it needed to be. In the UK, here we are 11 years later and you're talking about it. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, in the UK, if you don't talk about the rain, we haven't really got much else to talk about. So right, watching the Americans <laughs> come over and changing their waterproofs. I, I yeah, remember playing we, with an Aussie once them. in France, Greg. And yeah, it, we, it we had them. And, yeah, I mean, we had them. And, and the guys, it was actually rain gear that they wanted. And, and yeah, I just yeah. said, okay, that's fine. And, um, you know, I never thought about like going into the shower and sitting in a shower with the rain gear on or anything. Um, <laughs> like a preparation, Corey. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's my fault. So if uh, the, you know, it's not very often actually in the United States that, that we play in torrential rains, you know, if it rains no, that hard, it's usually lightning. So, you know, I, I even thought we were on the golf course a little long that Friday morning, you know, it was, I know they were trying to get as many holes they could get in, but it was, that was, it was, probably it was pretty wet. It was pretty wet. Yeah, who knows? You know, it, we were on. They could see on, you filling uh, up. They could soil. see the waterproofs filling up. And just give them an extra hour. They'd be massive. They won't be able to move their arms. We'll have them. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, it, but the, yeah. Yeah. The, anyway, the whole experience of being captain yeah. is fantastic. I mean, it, it's um, obviously a great honor and a great responsibility to, as well, you know, to, to do that. Um, yeah, I had a great time except for answering questions about the reindeer 11 years later, but the, uh, <laughs> the, the whole experience was, was pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, I could have, I, I think the, the most fun part for me was, you know, once the team was finalized and I could start talking to them and working on pairings and going over stuff and, you know, protecting the players from, you know, having to do a bunch of extra stuff. And, you know, I would take that responsibility and, and make sure that they were ready to play golf. And that was my main objective was to make it as easy as possible for the players to be ready to play. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's my job as captain or part of my job. How, how time consuming is it, that two year lead up? Like how, like, I know they have a big team of people at the PGA, but how, I know you can likely do whatever you want or as little as, or as much as you want, but how time consuming is it for the yeah, it's a, it's a lot, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, I'm sure players don't even think about, let alone the average person out there watching, you know, it, you know, just stuff like, you know, when we go out to dinner and, and we're have we had a couple dinners where, you know, the tables were mixed. So we'd have some European players, some American players uh, doing the seating chart for that. I mean, it's just like, really, you know, who cares, but, <laughs> but it's important, you know, you, you want to have people sitting together that, you know, are somewhat compatible as well. So, you know, things like that are important. Um, you know, just team meetings and, you know, what we talk about, how we talk about it. Uh, those things are obviously critical. Uh, just getting everything organized, uh, you know, clothing, uh, picking out the clothes, you know, that takes a lot of time uh, creating a golf bag uh, for the yeah. team. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that. That was fun actually doing that. Um, uh, but there's so many facets to it. You know, what kind of hats, you know, what kind of caps, you know, what do we put on it? Do we put the names on them? Do we not, you know, you know, Ricky was on the team and he had a, a certain hat he liked. Uh, do we try to get that hat, you know, stuff like that. Just, there's so many little details as well as, as big ones, um, you know, getting everybody organized to get on the charter and, you know, making sure everybody has their clothes when we get off the plane. I mean, just, it just goes on and on and on but it's, it's a lot of fun and it took a lot of time, a lot of effort. You know, Lisa helped me a ton, my wife, uh, getting that organized. Um, 
she's very detail oriented. I'm not as detail oriented. So that, that was very, she was very helpful for me. Um, but there's, it just goes on once I was named captain, it starts, you know, a lot of press conferences, uh, yeah. a lot of traveling to places and doing things. And, you know, some were a blast, you know, I got to throw out a first pitch at Yankee stadium, you know, I threw out a first cool. pitch at Dodger stadium. Nice. And for me, that was great. Cause I'm a Dodger fan. Um, right. yeah, yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff you get to do. You got to go to do, you know, I went to, uh, you know, uh, what's it, uh, Kentucky Derby, uh, you know, stuff like that, that come along with it that are pretty fun to do. Uh, and, you threw it in the dirt too, didn't you? Sorry? You threw it in the dirt, didn't you? You wouldn't have made it to the, to the, bonus, well, to the catcher. At, at Yankee Stadium, I did. I bounced it right in front of home plate, and I was so mad at myself. At, at Dodger Stadium, I threw a, a nice strike. Uh, I learned from my uh, first experience. Uh, but it was fun to do, and uh, yeah, those are neat things to do. But it is. It's very time-consuming. Uh, it, it, I remember about, I guess it was about a month and a half before the Ryder Cup, I just stopped playing. I just didn't play any tournaments to focus on on getting everything organized and ready for the Ryder Cup. And you know, I had a really good year in 2010, actually. You nearly won that year. You nearly won the, tra- uh, the Travelers, didn't you? Yeah, I was going to play off the there. Travelers. I, actually, if I would have won that tournament, I would have been close to, you know, making the say, team on close points. To getting, yeah. Yeah, I wow. would have been, I think I figured it out at the time. I think I would have been about 14th on oh, points wow. or 13th if I had won that tournament. Um, wow. Which would have created a whole new set of yeah. interesting questions. But... <laughs> Um, Captain picks himself. <laughs> yes. Well, I think I'll pick me. You know, that'd be a tough, yeah. an easy phone call. It'd be a tough pick. That'd put a lot of pressure on myself, wouldn't it? Um, but, you know, I had a good year that year. I played really well. And it was my first year on the Champions Tour. And, um, you know, I actually played well enough on the regular tour to be exempt in 2011, you know, as a 50-year-old. So that was kind of... Wow. That was kind of a neat thing. Not that I really took advantage of it. I only played, I think I played four tournaments in 2011 on the regular tour, but uh, it was a really amazing two years. You know, 2010 got more and more interesting as you got closer to the Ryder Cup. Um, I didn't want to go to sleep during the week of the Ryder Cup because I didn't want to miss yeah. anything. I felt like a little, yeah, hit. yeah. you know, I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed because something's going to happen and I'm going to miss it. So I didn't sleep much, but that was fine. You know, I figured I could sleep you know, the next week. It was no big deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How That's- much do you relive the choices you make? Because obviously it was super close, wasn't it? I mean, I know it went Europeans way, but it was 14 and a half, 13 and a half. So like, it's like, you know, it's match play and it's like one point. So it's super, super close or two points. Obviously I'm not, I probably, you needed to win, not draw. Um, but I can't remember that exactly. Obviously you picked, I think your picks were Zach Johnson, Tiger Woods and Ricky. Do you relive the picks? Do you relive and, the and, and, and Stuart and Stuart Sink? I had four picks and Stuart Sink. Yeah. Oh, sport, and Stuart Sink. My information. Yeah. There. Okay, cool. So, do you like you know we, you, we all do it as golfers? You play in a tournament and you relive putts that didn't happen and what have you. But they're yours. They're selfish. When you're captain looking at a team, do you look back more thinking, "I wish they made that putt or didn't hit that there," or it just is what it is? And obviously now it is what it is. But straight after, you know, you think, "Oh, if I'd have just." I was going to put them there and them there or how much reliving it after the event is there compared to say a normal tournament. I, I cannot honestly say I, I went over anything after that yeah. at all. You know, I, my, my philosophy going into it was gather as much information as I could uh, yep. talk to the players, talk to my assistant captains, uh, do everything I can to have as much info that I could have to make, the best decision I could make at that time. And then I was going to live with whatever decision that was. And, and that, yeah, like that was my philosophy. So, you know, afterwards I never really thought about it. I just, I said, you know, I did the best that I could with what I had. And uh, I didn't even think about doing anything differently because, you know, how could I know something was going to happen morally, yeah, you know, before. So, um, you know, we took, we, uh, the assistant captains, myself, uh, the players, we took, we sat around, talked about pairings and, um, how many rounds you want to play and, and all that stuff. You know, we went over it, over it, over and over again, and just made the best decision I could make at the time and have no regrets about it. And good. You know, and just live with that. And that's fine. You know, I, 
I think it's a horrible way to go around life, you know, regretting something or wishing you'd done something differently. And the only thing I felt like was important was getting all the info that I needed. And as long as I got everything I could, that I could make a decision based on that. And that's all I can do. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah I have two, two quick questions I have to ask. So I'm, I'm obviously a fan of the United States for the Ryder Cup. Uh, and mm, but as, the, as everybody should be. Exactly. But <laughs> I, I, do, I do have to say in, 20, <laughs> in 2010, when the Molinari brothers came out, that moment was, was crazy. So cool. Yeah, that was just yeah. amazing. So one, I want to know if you were there when, when that happened, if you saw that and what it was like. And then two. On the first tee, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was amazing. And then, and two, did you experience more nerves as a captain, or different nerves as a captain compared to as a as a player? Are they similar or are they different? Well, to answer your question, I I loved hanging out at the first tee, and listened to all the chants that the the European fans had. I thought they were brilliant. I was. So entertained by by I don't know what you even call the uh, the ditties I don't know what you call them is it is that the right way to say that they're little songs that yeah 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 yeah, oh, yeah the yeah. chants is good yeah 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 chants whatever they, they were they were brilliant I will say they were some of the funniest greatest <laughs> things I've ever heard I I want I couldn't wait to get to the first tee just to hear what they were going to come up with and you know the Molinari brothers came up and they had some kind of chant that you know I can't even remember what it was. Uh, but it was, it was pretty, pretty funny stuff and, and very creative. Uh, I, I love being on the first tee. Um, I know when, uh, Ricky Fowler got on the first tee, uh, they were saying like Ricky Fowler, Ricky Fowler, where's Bianca. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I don't. So, so I was like, they kept saying that over again, over again. And I'm like, what the heck are they saying? Right. So I asked a, a, a British person that was sitting there, I go, what is that? And they said, well, there's a soap opera on British TV. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 I know. And there's yeah. a character named Ricky Fowler and his girlfriend, Bianca, went missing like two or three years ago. And she's and still missing, right? And her boyfriend Ricky. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was just, I thought it was brilliant. You know, good stuff. And... <laughs> Uh, so I enjoyed being on the first tee and, and as far as nerves go, you know, as a player, I was way more nervous. So it's not even close. You know, I, I, again, I went into the Ryder cup as a captain saying, you know, I can do everything I can do and prepare and, and let these guys prepare and be ready to play. But once they tee off, you know, it's kind of out of my control in essence, you know, I yeah. can talk to them, I can give them advice, but you know, these are the best players in the world. You know, what am I going to tell them? Um, you know, I can tell them what clubs other players hit on par threes. Uh, you know, I can give them some advice on maybe how to play a hole, that kind of thing, or a shot. Uh, but, you know, I just kind of felt like I was just going to watch and see how it went. Um, I was going to be there if a player needed to talk to me about something or if they had any questions or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, but they're all grown men and they know how to play and you know, I was, my biggest concern were the rookies on the team. Uh, it was their first time playing and they were playing overseas, which is not the easiest thing to do in the world. Uh, so I, I kept an eye on those guys probably the most. Uh, Who were and, the rookies? Who were your rookies? Uh, Ricky was a, a rookie. Um, okay. That was his uh, first Bubba, one, was it right? Bubba. Okay. Watson, yeah, Jeff, was it? Yeah. Uh, Jeff Overton, Overton was a rookie. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like there was one more. Um, you got Mickelson, Hunter Mayhem. It must have been was, Hunter's first one, was it? Was it Hunter's first? It might have been Hunter's first, maybe. Might have been, yeah. Because he played um, um, he played Glen Eagles, which was after that. I remember him playing Glen Eagles against Kaima. Yeah. So that probably was. So I think, yeah, it was either the three or four. I can't, I don't know. I'm not even sure. But um, it was, um, those are the guys I was focused on the most. And, and they're, you know, kind of the guys I knew the least. So I, I wanted to get to know them you know, quite a bit in the, the weeks leading up to the Ryder Cup because uh, it's important for me as a captain to know how to talk to players and in, in talk that's their talk, not my talk. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that was a, a focal point for me as well with all the guys on the team, uh, but especially the guys I didn't really know that well at the time. Um, and so, you know, watching was just watching. 
you know, I, I was excited when Ricky made his putt on, on 18 on Monday, actually, uh, which made the last match matter. Uh, that was by far the most excited and nervous I was, was watching his putt on 18. Uh, so he made that putt to tie that match to make the, the, the match with uh, uh, Graham and Hunter matter yeah. for the outcome of the Ryder Cup. So, um, but it was, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, it was fun to go out and watch. And, you know, I just had the attitude of there's, I'm not playing. Uh, did I want us to make every putt and hit every shot? Great. Of course, you know, uh, tried to will it to happen. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it's out of my control. So what am I going to do? So it, it was just a lot of watching. And, and, you know, if I saw something that, you know, I wanted to go talk to the player about, I, I, I would do that. But uh, for the most part, you know, let them play and take care of it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, there we go, guys. Corey Pavin, the Big Ten. That was fantastic. Um, Lou, your time is coming, basically, I got from that chat today. I feel like you just got to keep us, keep believing, Lou. Those right. shanks will disappear. Lou, can, can you, have you got an old set of ass that you could send to Lou? Because he has the odd shank, Corey, <laughs> and they were quite anti-shank, weren't they? Yeah, yeah those VAS irons were hard to shank. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No. I was a big fan and I did try them for about a week, but I couldn't commit to them. I'm sorry. I, I had to stay with my Mizuno blades at that time. That's, they were, a, that's okay. They were you, you, haven't, you haven't hurt my feelings. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure we all get over that one. I know. Absolutely. There we go. Corey Paven. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was fantastic. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Thank Lou, you, Corey. Th- thank you, Corey. Questions. Thanks, Corey, for your time. Absolutely. Um, my pleasure. Comments down below, as always. Leave those stars. The Big Ten with Corey Paven. That was a lot of fun. And I'm a little bit starstruck. <laughs>